Welcome to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, connecting you to all things outdoors. Welcome everyone to episode 143 from Panoramic Outdoors. Before we get started, I want to give out a huge shout out to Co-op. If you guys don't know what Co-op is, it's a, you know, there's a grocery store, gas station, lumber. You find them basically any small community in the city, anywhere else throughout Canada, uh, especially in Manitoba, there's over 400 locations. So if you're getting out on the ice, you're going to go, you know, get some groceries to go camping. Or you want to build a new ice shack or maybe a hunting shack, check out Co-op first. They're uh, supporting us, so let's support them. Um, so a big thank you to Co-op and everyone and all their members. Tristan is on the other line with me today. I'm Sheldon. I got Tristan on the other line. We're going to be talking a little intro here before the podcast episode with Cody. Um, Cody's uh, from Colorado area, big in conservation, has a podcast, has a bunch of other things. So please stay tuned for that. But before we get going too much farther, I better introduce Tristan. And uh, we had a little bit of fun this weekend, eh? You know what? It was real fun. It was good to get out, and it was just nice to to connect with people. You're you're talking about the outdoor show, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay. <laughs> wasn't just there was that other fun, you know? But uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely the outdoor show was good. Actually, no, I it was fun hanging out too because we we hung out with the guys from Eye Hunter after the show too one night there. And lined up going to the Howard Johnson for a little dinner and uh, found out that there was a, a secret bar at that location. Eh? Yeah. And it was just like, it took our interest away from basically everything else that night. We just wanted to go there, but we had some pretty tired people at, at that table, I think from two days of the show already. Yeah. So, we didn't even have to travel far. Those two were traveling all the way from across the country and long days at the, at the outdoor show. Sheldon, what did you think of, uh, of the show? Well, the yeah the show was the show was okay and i i will i will i will say that um corrective criticism is good for probably next year and if uh the organizers or anybody else listen to our podcast they might get some feedback but like yeah the, the show is okay um there's you know there's some improvements i think that could have been made the one the one cool thing that i really liked about the show though was um just they had a like a vendor um like get together after the first night so you got to kind of shake hands with other people that had uh, booths and get a little bit of like a little bit of time kind of one-on-one with people without you know uh, a thousand people coming through the door or whatever it was so um but yeah overall it was a good show i thought too that one of the positives was and both mark and uh chad stenros echoed this was that there was everyone was like a positive interaction at that show you know what i mean they, they were saying they go to shows in Toronto and they get heckled if yeah. once in a while, like who, who would a heckle I hunter just, just to be fair. But uh, like at the same time, like to think that the uh, app sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I love the app. So it's hard for me to conceive of it that way, but um, yeah, it would just, it was, it was good to just meet that many new people, meet some people that were current listeners, um, had some really positive interactions mm-hmm. with current listeners. And then uh, Willie had an outstanding time at the show too. He made so many new friends. <laughs> well, it's funny because Friday night was a little bit slower and I was expected. It was super windy. And so, yeah, I was texting him like, what's Willie doing tomorrow? I'll bring him down here and meet some marketing 
some marketing <laughs> help here. And he sure brought the kids into our booth. That's for sure. And I mean, Willie is such a good dog. And so first of all, to all our listeners, how long have you had Willie? Two years? Two years. Yeah. Just over two years. So because of COVID and a bunch of other shit, I, that's my first time ever meeting that dog. And I was overly impressed. Like I, I've seen some well-trained dogs before, but Tristan's got a, Tristan, is it called like a good handle on your dog? Would you say that's what people say in the dog world? I think that's a term. I can't say that I'm in deep enough in the dog world to, to use it, but we, we oh. try to, we try to do enough training that, you know, Willie listens most of the time when he's supposed to, you know? Well, yeah, I don't think I seen him not really listen. I mean, a couple of times you had to tell him twice, but I mean, that's that's i think that's great in my books yes. but a couple of things about the show um aside from willie um is that the, the one thing that would have changed is i would have maybe added a, something more to the stage like they had some good presentations don't get me wrong but they had a couple people on there multiple times which i think that you could have maybe got someone else up there or brought someone in to like bring in more crowds um the other thing that was really a big positive for us i think was uh like you said meeting people that like have been following or listening to us and like we interact with them on Instagram, but like, we don't know who they are. So then you start talking to people and you're like, Oh shit, you're this guy. Oh shit. You're this girl. And uh, that's pretty cool. So I got a funny story to tell you though, Tristan. Oh, um, <laughs> we were, or I don't, I, I was, I think I was, I think it must've been Sunday with this uh, family I was walking by and I kind of started chatting with them and the guy's like, yeah, I don't really listen to podcasts. He's like, my buddy at work does though. And I was like, Oh yeah. I'm like, like, maybe you should start like, like, will you take one of our cards and like, check it out? And if not, tell a friend, he's like, yeah, sure. So he grabs the card and looks at it. He's like, you guys don't happen to be that group of hunters that like are trying to kill an elk, but have, have never killed an elk yet. Are you? And I'm like, started laughing. I'm like, really? And he starts laughing. He's like, yeah. He's like the guy I work with talks about you guys, how you guys are pursuing elk and you haven't shot one yet. And I'm like, well, at least we're not lying. Like yeah. I didn't know what else to tell him, but yeah, that's well, pretty funny. I guess if that's what we're known for across Manitoba or across Canada, yeah, it's not the worst thing. Yeah, bad elk hunters, bad moose hunters, like just under okay deer hunters. <laughs> pretty good. Duck. You guys are pretty good duck hunters, though. We'll probably make it one of them awards. Um, but yeah, other than that, what is, what else can you tell me about the show? Anything else that you can think of? Um, I was just yeah thinking about your comment there about having the presenters do a couple times, and I'm wondering if that's just for in case people couldn't make it at a certain time and really wanted to catch that session. Do you know what I'm saying? True. Yeah. 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 True. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, but speaking of shows too, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. But it, it like Saturday, it was busy, you know, like mm -hmm. we barely got a break at the booth, I would say. And, right. And there was, there was a lot of other good vendors there too. So it was kind of nice to see. Like I, I only got like one chance to go bug other vendors and like, like go see what the fly fishing associations offer and that kind of stuff. Kelsey came by and brought some stickers. Yeah. Yeah. What was a couple of the booths that stood out to you that you're like, Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Or you want to go talk to them. Yeah. Everything was, everyone was pumped about the butter booth. I never made it there, but no, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the fly fishing booths always seems like a big hit because they're they're doing the fly tying there. Um, the the air rifles or whatever they had at the back seemed like the kids were just loving it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then um, the Wildlife Federation booth at the back also seemed pretty pretty busy too. Yeah, they they had uh, every time I walked by, they had quite a few people there. 
the the couple that stood out for me um was the black earth girls because i've been, been eyeing them up for the last oh man they look years. so sweet they look so they're sweet. so so nice and then they have that one like did you see that fire table or whatever it is and it's got like an edge where you can like sear your meat and it's got a grill oh, yeah in the middle yeah oh that's that's cool um but i talked to a few of those folks too and uh yeah they're uh they're making some cool products um between that one and then what was that other one i thought oh there was a, like a forestry one and i know this might be the sound like a eh, nerd but uh, there's like this little forestry booth where they had a bunch of information about cutting wood and the right times to cut wood and like how to tell what type of trees and tree you have and blah, blah, blah. So I got some information from them because my tree knowledge is lacking. And I think it's good to like bring it up on the podcast too. Is like, you know, I should have read more of it before this intro, but there are seasons to cut certain type of wood. So you don't transfer like Dutch elm and other diseases across the province or country. So and so those information booths, I always kind of enjoy to get a little few pamphlets from and some bathroom reading, some might say. Yeah. We also bumped into Fair Forge Works too, who, who stopped by the booth and uh, it'll be, we got chatting with him, uh, Grace in there. So it'll be interesting to see what we can come up with here to, to mm-hmm. together kind of. Yeah. I, I, I went by that booth and I was going to stop and talk to them before he came to ours actually. But he was seemed like he was busy, man. There's people all over, so he must have a really nice product. He's like making knives and and hatchets and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I'm excited to like see what he's all making. I wish I could have you know checked his booth out a little bit better. But like I said, there's I bet you there's six or eight people surrounding his like display. So um, clearly he's making some cool stuff. So I'm excited to to uh, rub elbows with him. Totally, totally. Um, but yeah, the other thing too, I guess the last thing I'll talk about these, uh, outdoor shows and then we can move on is that this was our first one. So anybody that came and said hello, um, or anybody that didn't even come say hello, but you know, seen our thing or bought something from us or, you know, grabbed a sticker or a business card. Thank you very much. Um, it goes a long way and, and all three of us, we really, uh, we really appreciate it and appreciate you guys spreading the word. Um, starting a, a podcast out in a province like Manitoba is, is difficult. Um, we've got, you know, low population compared to a lot of other places and, but we have a really, really cool outdoors community where, where we think we can be successful. So thank you everyone that stopped by and that shared our stuff that bought our stuff. Um, and we're going to be going to another show because of the success of this one. We're going to the Yorkton outdoor show. Um, it's called the parkland Out- outdoor show. It's, uh, on the weekend, April 29th. So anybody from Saskatchewan or that Parkland region that wants to come over, we're going to have a booth. Um, and we're going to, yeah, we're going to be there all weekend. We might be doing a little bit of podcasting. We're going to try to maybe record some stuff. I know there's some big names going there and there's stuff that's going to be released in the next little while. So I don't want to blow it, but check it out on the internet. There's, they've already got a, a vendor list going. So you can go on there and check out who's going to be there for sure. Our name's on it. No big deal. Um, but yeah, they they're gonna have like an archery shoot. I think they have like calling like elk calling competitions. They've got yeah the archery shoot. They got a whole bunch of other stuff other than vendors. So it's kind of like a a family weekend ordeal. Um, Parkland Outdoor Show on the interweb. Go look it up right now. Are you are you going in the elk calling contest? I feel like given the <laughs> feedback that we got, we should avoid that at all costs. <laughs> especially since yeah. you lost like five cow calls in one day yeah no kidding i well maybe i'll go and watch it and get some tips how about that 
I wanted to say two more things about the show just real quickly. Um, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I heard I missed a couple people uh, one of the nights there. So if you, if I did miss you, I'm, I'm sorry. And we could maybe just shoot us a DM and I'll connect with you that way. And I was wearing, I don't know, I don't know if you were in, but I was wearing my wool love basically the entire show and I was wearing it today, wore it today at the rink. And it is, it is like, I feel like it's peak wool love season. I thought maybe I've said that before, but like, I've been using it like a villain lately and just oh, yeah. between, between all the different activities, even one of the offices that I have at work is pretty cold. Um, so it just helps me regulate. What I find is like, I don't overheat in it either. Cause I've had some other thermal bases that are like all polyester and, and they actually do not bad in the cold. But what I find is they don't thermal regulate as well when it's warmer and the, the wool love just kind of does, does both really well. Um, mm -hmm. so like, I mean, we still got our partnership with them there that we're appreciative of. And if you wanted to check them out, wool.love is the best way to do it. Cause you can use the, the panel code there, which is panoramic 15, the panoramic panoramic 15. And you're, you can check them out on Amazon, but we feel like you'd probably want to go straight to the site. Cause you get the discount code that way as well. Uh, we swear by it. They've got to be one of the longest standing products with us and, uh, we use it almost year round. So, um, you can't really go wrong with it. And basically every, anyone I talk to stands behind it too. So check them out. Wool.love. And I'm going to just keep wearing it. Sometimes I even fall asleep at night in it. So <laughs> if it's been a long day. Well, the other thing too is they send us a little bit, a little bit of stuff. I don't think we got our package for the show because we're supposed to get some stuff to display, and I don't think it came in the mail in time. But the one thing that they did send were the socks, and they re—I think they redid the socks because I grabbed a new pair, I stole a new pair from Chase. Uh, don't tell them. But now they like—they come up like halfway, not like on my leg, like up half my halfway up my calf, which the other ones are a little bit shorter. So I really like that because you can like roll them up past like way up your long johns um so they're almost like boot height like rubber boot height yeah and I, so i really like that 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 they changed that oh that's awesome that's a good note i'll be looking forward to that they seem to be kind of tweaking things always eh yeah and but but yeah exactly they, they um it's the same kind of sock but except for this yeah it's a little bit more elastic elastic or whatever mm -hmm. and uh, yeah it rides higher which is which i really like um but yeah awesome it's also like peak, I don't say peak ice fishing season because it might be slowing down a bit now. The bite on the red is slowing down a bit. Our buddy Dylan back there got out to the ice shack, our ice shack on the red there, took his son, Harv Dog, out for a fish and caught some sauger. We were out yeah. there on the weekend. The shack has been well used this, this winter. That, that's cool. much. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of family rotating through, so it's even cooler to see like memories getting made there. Um. But on the ice fishing front too, I also spill the beans that Harvester had like this wild sale going on over the past couple of days. Harvester outdoors in Selkirk. Um, yeah. Strike striker bibs were like something wild, like 40% off. Um these these HT Enterprise tents, you know, we we rock a lot of the HT tent uh stuff ourselves. Um, we have the exact same tent. That thing was on for like 470 or something like that, something unheard of. And so I had a few buddies that were actually looking for these, uh, for some items. I know Brian, president of the fan club, was looking for a striker bib system. And another guy I know was looking for a pop-up. 
I sent them there the way and uh they they got hooked up and um everyone everyone I I deal with like is really impressed with the the service that they get at at Harvester because like I I got messages from from my one buddy there who bought the tent and he was like man I was asking for some like cards or something to spread the word because like I felt just so good uh getting stuff at Harvester he was kind of comparing the difference between maybe a more box store interaction we'll say Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've um, I've I've had a few experiences at Harvester. Can't say anything bad. And like, yeah, I like that fa- like that uh, family-run business type thing. I grew up in a family-run business, so I really appreciate the ones that are still exist today. Um, but they also have that five-dollar minnow deal. Is that still going on? Do you know? That's still going hot. I believe proceeds are also going to the Kids Fish Fund or the Children's Hospital, and they've revamped their interior. So if you haven't been there since they revamped it, it looks pretty clean and pretty slick. Um, nice. And they they always seem to have new stuff rolling through. So yeah, I love stopping by. The the one like downside I'll say is like sometimes I don't get out of there. I plan to just pick up bait and I don't get out for like maybe half an hour. Cause I'm just talking shop or something like that. So right. I can't, uh, I gotta sometimes budget for that or maybe just like have a minnow drop box or something like that where I just <laughs> put my money in and take off. Yeah. You should Oh, maybe that's an invention. Yeah. Uh, a minnow vending machine. Just put in your five bucks and get a tub of minnows pops out like a Pepsi Cola <laughs> machine. <laughs> It's, it's not the worst idea, eh? You could probably just scan yeah. with the card, too. Minus 30 out. Yeah, just put a few up at, like, the, the launches on the Lake Winnipeg. You might be onto something here, Sheldon, so, like, don't <laughs> don't give away too many. I know we were talking to Mark and Chad, too, at, at iHunter about a few app development ideas, so, like, we can't, we can't give away all our intellectual property here, I don't think, eh? No, exactly. Maybe we should edit that out. <laughs> oh well we'll keep we'll keep her in for this time but no one steal my idea please yeah. well anything else you got on the go for the intro and if not we should maybe fire this off yeah i think that's good and uh looking forward to listening tuning into this podcast right on let's fire it off all right well today's podcast episode guest um we've found him through a friend of ours named doug Dern. he recommended to talk to this guy talk about a little bit of elk hunting hunting in general so we looked him up got him on the podcast and welcome to our show cody lujan i get that right you nailed it thanks guys yeah. appreciate <laughs> appreciate the opportunity to speak with you here today yeah it's it, i'm super excited to get get going and, and starting to talk with you i know we talked briefly on the phone um prior or before the podcast here and i uh, had a lot a lot to talk about i'm like damn it we should have recorded that whole conversation for 40 minutes because it was a good one. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to jump right into the fiber and questions. Chase, do you got any ready or do you want me just to give her? I got a couple if you, if you want. Yeah. Okay. Well you take, you take four and five. I'll do the first three. Okay. Okay. Here we go. So Cody, if you, this is my favorite question I ask everybody. Um, but if you had one last meal before taking off from this earth, um, what would it be? And what would you have to drink with it? Ooh, Hands down, elk back straps with green chili from New Mexico and blue cheese. And a drink, Ooh. I'd have a nice smooth bourbon or a good smooth tequila, man. It's a toss up there. So Nice. Nice. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm a big, big tequila drinker, and I actually drank too many of them on Saturday night. So two-day <laughs> two, two hangover. <laughs> Funny um, thing is, 
I drank too many of those on Saturday night as well at my wife's gym and uh, got conned <laughs> into returning to the gym as well. So well. it's not too many times I hear people getting having tequila at the gym, but I might need to start joining the gym too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It what... a, it's a CrossFit gym and they're having their annual gala uh, type function. So oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. nice. Do you have a, do you have a favorite bourbon that you uh, tend to lean towards oh me and the boys in the neighborhood usually uh crack into a bottle of old elk and um trying to think i've got a pretty good collection upstairs in my cabinet but uh that's kind of the dad's go-to bottle in my neighborhood nice yeah. have you tried that one chase uh i think so i i can't say it's uh it's not a regular pick on on my uh it, for me it's normally like a a beam or like a, a bullet it's kind of my favorite right. mid-grade bourbon i'd say but I guess uh, that, that question would be kind of for tristan he drinks quite a, he tries different bourbons all the time so he's more of a bourbon connoisseur than i am for sure yeah um cody question number two uh you gotta you get to go to a concert you can go watch anyone alive or dead who would you who would you go watch Ooh, given that i'm on a canadian podcast right now i'm gonna say with go with gordon lightfoot man back when he was mm. uh had it together nice <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a good answer i never i mean that's a new one for the podcast um third question is that if you had what i like to call like um let's say you have a whole bunch of extra money or fuck you money is what i like to call it what would be your first toy that you'd go buy yourself Ooh, damn fine question probably a jet so that i could get to every fishing and hunting destination <laughs> i wanted as quickly as possible nice. i i I have a couple of buddies with jets and we call them time machines because nice. you hop in, close your eyes, have a beer and you're there. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that would be, that would be number one on my acquisition list. Right on, right on. Chase, you well, got a couple more. Yeah. We're going to have to, uh, make sure you keep Cody's number after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> instead of, <laughs> <guess> that jet. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this is a hunting podcast. I'm, I'm, uh, well, outdoor podcast, we'll say. So I'm obligated to, uh, throw a couple, um, outdoor questions in there. And we already talked about your last meal, but what's your, uh, do you have a go-to meal in the backcountry? Ooh, good question. Um, I hate to admit it, but, uh, I have two of them. In fact, it's the rice and chicken mountain house meal and then ramen. I'll actually bring in some raw eggs and I'll boil up ramen and, crack a, a raw egg in there and boil it up and mix it up a little bit Get of a nice. protein uh, Get, hot hot drink mix Get the protein so, nice yeah, yeah not a bad yeah. idea actually yeah. i'll just keep that one in the back pocket for sure and uh also on the on the fishing side of things um what's your favorite way to to prepare a trout for a feast Ooh. You know, honestly, my favorite way, harkening back to the days of my childhood, is a bunch of little brookies, technically a char, but cutthroats, any any small little pan fry fish up in the high country, always bring a stick of butter, some tin foil, lemon, and a little bit of seasoned salt and throw them in there. And even at home sometimes, I don't eat too much trout uh, these days, but that's that's as good as life gets right there. Yeah. Fried up right up in a skillet heck yeah man that's uh that's a good way to eat them we uh i once in a while um i'll do that but uh, a friend of mine we were is actually with brookies too introduced me to that we were staying up on a, this camp in the on the coast of hudson bay 
and we just caught a few smaller brookies, like probably like, I don't know, 12 inch brookies kind of thing. And that was, uh, yeah, that was supper, man. Fried up in the skillet, lots of butter, salt and pepper. And uh, away we went. Hell yeah, that's as good as life gets. Yeah, yeah. No complaints around the, the table that night, that's for sure. Even, yeah, I find it even like um, with walleye, like we eat quite a bit of walleye up here in Canada and, you know, you can batter it, fish batter it, beer batter. But they are, like, I find it that I kind of crave just, I'm not saying it's plain, but just butter and yeah, a couple, maybe a couple onions and salt, salt and pepper. And it's usually pretty good. Um. So let's get into the meat and potatoes of the podcast and uh, get to know Cody a little bit. Can you maybe go through on uh, what, like how it all started for you, Cody, like how, um, how you got started into the outdoors, um, you know, maybe some little bit of your experience uh, from when you're young to where you are now. Absolutely. Um, I grew up on a small ranch just south of my hometown here, Steamboat Springs, and I guess my passion for the outdoors is a direct result of both my father and my mother. Just literally, I have been elk hunting since I was thrown in a pack uh, frame at a couple of months old and taken up in the woods behind the house on elk hunts. So that was just kind of how my parents raised me, and I knew nothing, but that was fun. I mean, we're going to go fishing, we're going to go hunting. That was what we looked forward to. And then my passion for elk, my first word literally as a child was elk we had a (laughs) yeah no shit we had a big herd of elk that were wintering right right around our house down in the valley right off the mountain that i grew up on and um there was a big herd of elk in the uh right in front of the big window there and legend has it that uh i looked i was sitting in my bouncer and pointed up and said elk and that that uh was the beginning of the end and my passion for uh (laughs) so you set the bar pretty high right out of the gate for yourself i did little (laughs) did i know at the time i didn't know but uh that's that's what i love to do is get after them that's amazing yeah. And so as I also, as, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, so as you as you uh, like grew up in, into like your uh, I, well, the years that you could start, you know, walking and getting out and start flinging arrows and stuff like that. What did that look like for you? Were you hauling your own pack into the backcountry and stuff? You know, um, I was the kind of kid. I grew up so rurally. I didn't have my nearest neighbors were like a mile, mile and a half away. So a good time for me as a kid was literally I would tell my mom I'd be home before dark and I would just go up on the mountain. I lived on the side of a mountain, a big aspen grove, elk calved, catch suckers and trout. And um, so it was just literally, yeah, I was in in my blood. I think I was a product of my own environment. That sounds amazing. (laughs) <laughs> no complaints every child should be raised that way as far as i'm concerned yeah no kidding it's funny i had uh i had a conversation with with uh with my wife not so long ago and she uh we both kind of grew up really um where i grew up was was kind of more in the country and she was kind of more in like the almost like a suburb but not quite and uh we we're talking about things we did when we were kids and she was talking about all the board games she played and I was like, I didn't really play that. I don't know. I'd like, I've never seen that game before. And she's gave me the, well, what did you do growing up? <laughs> it's like, well, I was usually lost in the bush beside her house somewhere or having a campfire in the backyard or something. Oh, exactly. That's perfect, man. Yeah. I can relate. I can relate. Right so growing up uh, in Colorado, you, did you spend like most of your teen years and you're, you know, getting to where you're at now? You 
all the whole time in Colorado hunting, fishing, doing all that stuff? Uh, good question. Um, uh, through about grade eight, I was here in Colorado and my parents kind of sidebar, my parents, uh, rehabilitated wildlife for the state of Colorado. So okay. we'd get injured raptors. Big part of my hunting story is for, as a result of this, we'd get raptors that needed to be fed anything and everything. So my job was going out and shooting squirrels to feed the uh, great horned owls that uh, were in getting rehabilitated or red tail hawks, whatever the raptor happened to be. And then with smaller, uh, smaller raptors like kestrels, I would go out with my BB gun and shoot uh, grasshoppers with my BB gun and, collect them <laughs> and bring them back, you know? And so that, that was kind of where I really just, you know, I think you, in, in a lot of sport, you talk about muscle repetition, but I think that kind of parlayed into just being a good field shot. So Colorado youth there. And then I went to high school in New Mexico where my father's family is from and um, went to a private school there and went into culture shock and then first day of school. But, uh, <laughs> Ended up um, new, hunting in New Mexico became a huge part of my life as a result, direct result of that. My parents were really good about still making certain that I hunted and fished, um, and I just had to re relearn everything everything I thought I knew. Yeah, so, well, New, new Mexico is yeah pretty is pretty um, coveted elk hunting state. That's for sure, as far like as far as I know, and some good fishing too, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean. Some of the best elk hunts I've been on in my life, some of the biggest bulls I've killed in my life have been out of New Mexico. And New Mexico is wild in a sense that Colorado is losing right now and that you can get a half mile off the road from New in New Mexico and there's nobody. There's nothing. Really? Yep. It's still got that wild feeling. And I guided on, on a huge ranch for a family back when I was in graduate school that um, literally it's the most wild elk I've seen in my life. These elk had no interaction with humans. We would be calling working elk during the rut and would call in multiple bulls and literally have these bulls standing 10 feet away from you, looking at you, just sitting there staring at you. And you'd stand up and try and spook them off because you're trying to go down and kill the herd bull. And meanwhile, you've got these big, beautiful satellites surrounding you. And they walk in downwind from you and stand there and look at you. Um, so you get a little bit of that wildness in New Mexico. And you, the controlled tag situation down there, you just don't run into the quantity of hunters that you would here in Colorado. No kidding. That sounds amazing. Oh, yep, yep. And some interesting oh. genetic theories on the elk, why the elk are so big down in southwestern New Mexico in the Gila region. Yeah. So they are yeah. like like um antler wise or body mass wise, they're they're larger as well. Interesting. We some of the biggest bulls um my family has ever taken body wise have been in New Mexico. Really? We call yep. Um you'd think that that far down south they'd be, you know, a little bit smaller in stature mm -hmm. and carrying giant antlers but some of these bulls i i i shot a giant bull probably seven or eight years ago and i weighed the butcher didn't believe me at first that it was off of one elk i weighed 378 pounds of boned out meat off of bull wow so you do the math on that you're looking at a 900 a thousand pound bull elk yeah and we would and not all the bulls we killed down there were built like that but the some of the big big gila bulls that we killed were just these big long heavy bodied elk no kidding and, yeah oh, unlike anything we'd seen 
And we call those elk, by the way, we call them thoroughbreds. <laughs> even, up, even up here in the high country in Colorado, every few years, we'll kill a big mature bull. And the first question we go through is, oh my God, what the hell are we going to do with this? Now we got to pack them out. But they're literally, they're longer um, in terms of their body length. They're taller and heavier than anything around them. Um, they're just, they're just built differently. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. yeah that's about yeah. the the same, uh, weighing in about like some of the moose that I've, I've brought into the butcher. That was a personal, that, that was the heaviest bull I've ever gotten confirmation off of. And I literally cool. had to fight with the butcher that no, I'm literally, you can lay all my cuts out. This is off of one animal. Jeez. Oh. Oh, and oh. what what was that meat like? Like, was it? Did you find any different from any of the other bulls you've taken, or was it outstanding like, was it eating? Like, yeah, well, outstanding eating. Um, no way. You know, the southwestern New Mexico is a lot like the far northwestern corner of Colorado, and it's effectively kind of high mountain desert. And mm -hmm. so, the grasses that these high protein grasses that come on in this country are actually really, really good for game, and they eat really mm -hmm. well. The only uh, poor eating at bull I killed in New Mexico was up in northern New Mexico, up in the Chama, New Mexico area. And it was an old regressed bull, herd bull. His teeth were worn down to his gums, that sort of thing. And I shot him as he was uh, coming out of a wallow. And hmm. um, he, <laughs> A, it was a stinky elk. And B, it was just one of those elk, very few elk out of the many elk I've eaten um, in my life were just like, it was painful to burn through that bowl. Um, so, you know, just a ruddy old stinky bowl. And, yeah. but that's, that's, that's an anomaly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I've run into a few of those moose hunting. Well, not me personally, but I've had, had a few cuts of moose meat where I think it was a, a ruddy old bowl, you know, that's been in the bush for too many years, but <laughs> Um, I got, yeah. So anyways, so talking about elk hunting, I mean, uh, clearly by the sounds of uh, a little bit of your biography that we just listened to, you've spent a lot of time in the elk woods hunting and looking for elk, you know, everything. Um, did you happen to do any like, like guiding or anything? And while you're coming up, I did, um, when I was in graduate school, I guided for a uh, family on their, on this same huge ranch that I was, that I mentioned earlier with the wild elk. So I, I would guide on private ranches and effectively mm -hmm. started guiding probably, geez, in on, on ranches, probably in my teens oh, yeah. and then turned into a fly fishing guide as well. And guided, ended up going up, spending my summers up in Alaska, working at a couple oh, of nice. lodges there. Yep. And then, um, literally I think the fly fishing game just kind of burned me out on guiding. And uh, I, you know, just realized that, you know, a few bad eggs can kind of sour you on that. And when you're working hard to go get other people killed out on elk that they may not appreciate in the same manner that you do, it just kind of takes the, you know, it can take the fun out of it and the passion out of it. Mm -hmm. So, and then you just career change, you know, I got out of graduate school and became, uh, started my practice and really just, uh, didn't have time to guide, um, anymore. That'll happen. Yeah. That's yeah. a, that's a tough, uh, the guiding is a tough world because like you said, you do get a couple bad apples in the bunch once in a while. And it's like, you know, it's almost like, it doesn't matter how hard you're hunting either or 
whatever, right? It's just like, they're just not satisfied. Exactly. And some of those people, I mean, they're not, I mean, if you're truly a hunter, you're enjoying the hunt. It's not about the kill, but when you are around those individuals whose sole focus is on killing something and typically it's killing the biggest thing that they think they can get Mm -hmm. there, you know, I find that a disrespectful, not only your guide, but where you're hunting and the animals that you're hunting. Um, you know, when you're just there for the kill and those are the clients, I think you can relate that are just, um, the kind of the toxicity comes out and they're the tough ones to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's definitely a difficult situation. Um, I'm curious about, uh, your elk hunting setup though. Are you a, uh, like an archery purist? Are you rifle hunting as well? Oh man, I used to be an archery purist and then, (laughs) (laughs) and then I graduated from law school, started practicing law, um, and then got married and started having kids. And so I literally just found myself not having the time to dedicate to archery like I used to. And as time became more and more valuable commodity for my, myself, my family and career wise, um, I really just had no choice, but to hunt in the later October, November rifle seasons, if I wanted to hunt at all. Mm-hmm. And then my current, my current profession, September is one of my busiest months. So I just, you know, if I got an archery tag, we have a 30 day archery season here. And if I got an archery tag, I'd be lucky to go out a day or two on, on my own. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's tough. I, I, I definitely ref- can, uh, um, feel you on some of those, uh, you know, just getting busy with life as well. Cause same thing, kids work and all that on, on my end. Uh, we got, I got a young family here. One of our other partners here, my brother, Tristan, he's got young family. He just had his second one in November and, uh, yeah, man, life gets busy. Time it does. Time is very limited. You gotta be intentional with every minute outside of what you're doing pretty much around the home. Right. So. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I've killed, I've killed elk with archery, muzzleload and uh, rifle. So uh, I'm an opportunist is what I would say. Yeah, totally. Totally. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, What's your, what's your go-to rifle for hitting the, hitting the mountains, chasing after elk? Ooh, you know, I hate to admit this. It's not my favorite caliber by any stretch, but uh, I will also note that I take a lot of first time hunters hunting. And a lot of my clients, when uh, I sell ranches for a living, and I sell a lot of elk hunting ranches. And so oftentimes, you've got someone who's not familiar with elk hunting, much less the property that they've just bought. And mm-hmm. so what I will do is I'll take the new owner hunting for the first year or two on their property and get them kind of dialed in. We'll figure out what the elk are doing or not. And so the best gun that um, I, the best caliber rifle that has killed the most bulls on elk hunts with me in the last seven years is a six, five Creedmoor of all things. Really? And uh, yeah. Yep. And, uh, I think mine's got like 13 bulls in the last seven years, obviously, Man. you know, only a couple of those are mine, but that's not, uh, I'm more of a 300 wind mag 280 nozzler type guy in terms of just, um, efficacy, at, you know, three to 400 yards and knockdown power and, this year I was carrying a, uh, custom, uh, a very nice custom rifle. One of my buddies, 280 Nosler long distance gun that I'd shot some odd ad in Texas with earlier this year. I'm very confident shooting out the long range with, I was 
had this incredible elk tag this year. And I thought, Oh, I'm going to use this, my buddy Scott's gun. And um, that way I'm, I'm hunting out in this open kind of desert country. I can reach out and, and not even think twice at four or 500 yards on a big bull with this gun. Right. Mm-hmm. And what, ha- what happens? I end up shooting a giant bull at 70 at 40 yards. Rather. <laughs> so, <laughs> go figure. You carry a long distance gun, you shoot one at an archery range. So, no kidding. That's how it goes. Yeah, eh? yeah it was a good hunt. Great hunt. Yeah, it sounds amazing. You said something kind of a, a few minutes ago about how you uh, are selling ranches and you get to go on some of these hunts and show people, um, get them onto the elk hunting, uh, I don't want to say game, but on the elk hunting world, mm-hmm. um, which brings me a question that I have, a, like kind of a personal question, because um, like I was telling you earlier, um, I think on the phone, but not a, I just started getting elk hunting, you know, four or five years ago. And I have, every time I've went on with Chase, who's been hunting them for quite a while but when you're going into these like new areas and new spots like what are you looking for um to try to like i mean obviously you're looking for the elk itself but when you're like hiking around those mountains or wherever like what are some of the the signs that you're looking for to be onto the like the right herd or you know the herd bull or stuff like that like do you have anything you can let me know about oh that's a tough question i really think one thing that I look for when I'm looking at uh, elk hunting ranches with clients is that's great if there's a bunch of cow elk there during the summer and there's pictures of wintering bulls there during the winter. But when I'm in the woods and I'm thinking, okay, what time of year do I really care that the elk are here? All right, during right. the rut and post rut periods. So what are what are the signs that I'm going to be looking for during the summer before I go into a, or go into a ranch that's blind? I'm going to be looking for, you know, a lot of rubs, some old wallows, um, more specifically, I think elk will rub. I've watched them rub, you know, anytime they have antler uh, Mm -hmm. on. So you can have on south facing slopes, steep south facing slopes, a lot of sun exposure. You'll, you'll have those winter bulls rubbing, but I'm looking for those, um, I guess, little hell hole pockets, dog pine timber with a wallow in them and a basically a bull's back uh bull's bedroom some somewhere where you can tell that during the rut bulls are using this property and around here one thing that i've noticed is with our elk we have a lot of aspen forest around here um so the cow elk love to calve in those aspen forests and i've often found that when you find a good calving area um uh, for whatever reason these elk will actually rut in that same spot pretty not not all the time but it's something that um i found you know i've got a few spots that are calving areas in in aspen forest they're also just rut playgrounds so not sure why that is but yeah pretty interesting observation and then i guess a lot of it just you know i want good feed good water south north facing aspects slopes um because you're gonna have those elk are going to need those uh slopes at different times of the year figure why is there why are the elk on the south facing slopes during the winter they're feeding there but they're not eating that grass during the summer are they right they're they're over on the north facing slopes they might come across the tops of those ridge lines but uh, nature has a funny way of of sorting these things out so Mm -hmm. that's a tough i could talk on that subject for hours as things come to mind but you know those are generally the things that i look for around here yeah, no kidding. So I'm I'm very curious about this uh, this real estate profession that you got going on here. <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> an amazing gig, but so 
um like first of all so is it like are you exclusively like selling elk properties and is it like people come to you to sell these these uh ranches what what i'm assuming are either just like when you say ranch just like uh you're selling like um a huge acreage or maybe a cattle ranch or something like that correct so i am a partner in the united states oldest ranch brokerage firm oh, i have tw 24 partners and we're all even we actually split our commissions pay expenses and evenly disperse out um at the if there's anything to take out so our business we've been in business for 78 years hmm. and we have and we're also, a, we have a huge ranch management division as well. And so at the end of the day, um, with 78 years of effectively acting as advisors to families who are both selling or looking to acquire um, ranches, you know, it's become an asset class, um, an investment for some, uh, a dream, fulfilling a dr lifelong dream for others. Mm -hmm. So you deal with everything from old working cattle ranches to what I would call a purely recreational property, which is typically mm -hmm. a really good hunting property, a lot of fly fishing properties. And then nice. sometimes you get some really good clients who have some properties. You're like, ah, it's not really what we, it's really not in our wheelhouse, but because you're my client, I'm going to take this property on. Yeah, yeah. So do I geek out about elk hunting properties? Hell yes. Um, <laughs> When they're good ones, when they're good ones. So yes, uh, large ranches and or smaller properties that have some really unique features, such yeah. as a good trout stream or something like that. And inevitably, some of these places have monster houses or lodges on them as well. So you, you've got to be pretty well versed in uh, the residential side of things and because of that. And you've got to know your, uh, have a base level knowledge with regard to water rights, cattle, Right. Um, hey, you know, crop production, mineral rights. So it's a multi, it's a little, it's a lot different than your typical residential real estate agent who's mm -hmm. um, pitching used houses not down the street. Um, I always joke that I'm a used ranch salesman. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's pretty cool. But, that sounds like yeah. a freaking really cool job because I know, well, I mean, most of the people you'll de you deal with in the country are, are pretty good folk the, the ranchers and stuff like that and we i we uh crossed paths with a few ranchers in the our elk hunting as well in manitoba here and they're uh they're all pretty good folks so it's pretty interesting and i agree i mean i just growing up rurally and sounds like we have that in common and the the i mean salt of the earth good people and totally. uh, you know and then I get to meet, spend some time with some pretty incredible uh, people as well who are looking to buy ranches. So you've got to be comfortable at a kitchen table in a, a mobile home as you are walking into a boardroom somewhere on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. so it's a pretty diverse dichotomy of life that I get to deal with. Nice. I'd like to uh, kind of dive into a little bit of the your thoughts on the elk hunting and cattle country there too and, and how... Um, the uh cattle will say either interact or um affect elk patterns we'll say like have you have you found that they have a, a large effect on on uh where the elk will be and, and how they move throughout a landscape absolutely i i don't think there's any one like theme that's 100 percent accurate the only thing i note is that when there are when there's a huge number of cattle on the landscape the elk will not 
want to be there. Mm-hmm. Now, if they're, if that, if everything's focused on a, if it's a drought year and everything's focused on a water source, you'll have more interaction, more crossing between the elk and the, and the uh, cattle. But for the most part, if you've got a high density of cattle on a ranch, um, your elk densities are going to be lower. And so what we do on a lot of my clients ranches is our grazing season typically runs from May through the end of August or into September, early October on some properties. We will um, actually remove the cattle. uh, Typically August 15th is our cattle removal date. Um, So we'll get the cattle off of the elk hunting areas of the ranch. The primary areas of the ranch are totally um, trailed off. Uh, the property and we'll get two weeks of regrowth after they've been grazing. And that two weeks of regrowth will just stock elk right back in. Nice. So assuming the cattle haven't overgrazed it and it's not too yeah. droughty, but typically that's, that's been a very successful program for some of my clients and friends on their ranches. Oh, but, man, that, that gives, that gives me hope for the fall because one of my, one of my prime elk hunting properties that I've been hunting in the last few years uh, I just got word last year that is they're now going to be uh, putting cattle on it. So, Ooh. it's a it's a massive piece of land, but uh, yeah. So hopefully, uh, hopefully, it doesn't push all the elk out of there. Yeah, I hope so. Not, I, I hope not. Rather, that's uh, interesting. I mean, it could sometimes it opens up more cover and you know leads to a lot more regrowth over over a period of time. Kind of opens it up to where those elk will want to be in there. But yeah. Um, yeah, I guess just sound cattle grazing yeah. practices will dictate. <laughs> yeah, whether... well, it 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 has been in a pat in the past. They've they've it is uh, has been uh, pasture in the past, but not since I've started elk hunting it. And I will say the cattle trails are pretty awesome to utilize to maneuver through the the inner lake yeah. brush out here because it's when you're walking through the woods out here, you got like you're either walking in a marsh or you're walking through hazel brush that you can barely see through. So. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Cattle trails are super highways yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and the elk will use them. Like I said, the elk will just funnel through those things in our thick timber country as well. And, um, um, I agree with that. That's a good way to sneak around. And I've actually had bulls come in. I've spooked cattle, you know, sitting on a water tank all day and nothing's going on, nothing's going on. And the, damn cows start coming into water right at prime shooting light at the end of the day god damn it get out of here so you stand up and throw some rocks at them and everybody thunders off so you're like oh i better cow call really quick and then boom here comes a bull just running because they hear that's one thing uh you know elk are used to hearing elk yeah people are you know pussyfooting around the woods all the time being silent and you, what happens, you guys are elk hunters, you hear an elk, heard an elk walk through the thick stuff, sounds like a train's walking around, oh, yeah. elk's walking around in there, you know, so I've actually used the, that, that cattle noise to help me kill elk. Yeah, draw some in. Yeah. That's cool. What's, but, what's, yeah. I was going to say, what's your, so what's your uh, um, method when you're out hunt, like actively hunting for elk? Like, do you worry about uh, making noise and spooking something off or are you, you uh like you said are you acting more like an elk and just kind of not worrying so much about making noise traveling through the woods depends on the scenario yeah and and when later season you know late season hunts are some of my favorite for big bulls up in this high country and that time of year you've got to be stealthy 
you don't want to be rolling rocks, that sort of thing. And when I'm hunting during the rut, sometimes the best thing you can do is, you know, a lot of guys do it as well, but break branches, roll some rocks, rip up some grass. And, um, or if you're trying to get from point A to point B and you know, you're going to blow anything and everything out of there, you know, as long as your clothing isn't catching and making a lot of sweeping noises, um, a few cow calls and you just crunching leaves and walking through the woods can actually work to your benefit. And mm-hmm. I've actually had elk that were be- unseen and but yet bedded stand up and actually look at you, uh, look at me to, to see what was going on. And, you know, I've killed elk being noisy in the woods mm-hmm. just like that. So, but it, it, like I said, there's no perfect answer for anything. The only thing I know about elk hunting is I don't know shit about shit. Um, but uh, i do it i do it enough that uh i'm able to capitalize on those two to three windows second windows of opportunity yeah it's it's definitely something that like i'm I'm, i always say you learn something every time you hit the woods especially when you're elk hunting and you're interacting with those animals exactly exactly just when i think i have something figured out the game changes yeah so yeah so you're doing a bunch of elk hunting there. So I guess my next question for you, and then with this, uh, with your job, you get to see a lot of these ranches and private land, but do you have a preference between private and public land when it comes to elk hunting? And if you do, what is, what makes it that preference? Yeah. Great question, man. Um, my, I think it's my pride more than anything. I take so much pride in hunting, successfully hunting big mature elk on heavily pumped hunted public ground you know that's that's like uh, there's nothing more challenging and nothing more rewarding for me um you know i i do i hunt private ground hell yeah uh, i do and i've killed some great bulls on on private ground um but um i'm trying to think most of my big bulls have come off of public lands hmm. and so that that has especially here in colorado we have these over-the-counter what are called over-the-counter units and so there's no out. You can literally go to Walmart the day before the hunt or the gas station and buy a bull elk tag. And so what inevitably what happens is you've got thousands of guys in each of these units and we call it the pumpkin patch because you look out on every ridge and there's a dude and there's road hunters going up and down and um, for an elk to reach five and a half years of maturity in these units, they've got to be really smart. And, you know, I enjoy hunting those bulls. You know, I think I've gotten past that point where I need to kill something every year and more to the point of, I want to hunt these animals that are so wily and so at the end of the day, just so wild, that they're going to take me into incredible country and really make me work hard to even get a glance at them. Yeah, that's cool. And it's interesting kind of to a point where, you know, you, and this is just my observation of of yourself is just like you've said is the biggest bulls you've shot was on public land. And it almost makes me think is like when you get onto that private land, maybe you're not going to those deep and dark corners of it to find those big old bulls. You know, you, you see a good bull, big bull on private. I don't know if this is making sense, but in my mind, when you're hunting public, you're going way deep and into like spots where nobody's going. Like you said, it takes forever to find one or whatever. It's so much more hard work, but you, those big bulls are still there. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Like the thing is like up here in Canada, we don't, like, I mean, we do have a little bit of struggle with public land, but in, in general, most of our elk hunting is on public land. There's some, some private that you can get onto you as well, but I don't think there's like that pressure and chase, maybe you can back me up or argue with me about that. But 
on the public land in Manitoba, there's not like thousands of guys elk hunting it um, because of the draw system as well, right? So, yeah, yeah. So the the elk our elk hunt here is is pretty heavily regulated, and uh, it yeah it does, um, and we got lots of public land too, and the elk are hard to hunt in the like it's not ideal elk hunting territory that's for sure and uh, it definitely keeps a lot of people out of the woods the public land spaces and uh lots lots of people who do draw elk tags will have some pub, uh private land lined up but even the the few that are the the diehard public land hunters are very rarely that you'll run into somebody in the same spot i, I do once in a while but it's not it's kind of a tip of the tip of the hat and we'll see uh see you later kind of thing so wow that's got to be that's refreshing to hear that there's places like that <laughs> uh, i think here in colorado we've just we've got uh, you know right around three million people in a state that's growing rapidly and losing wildlife habitat every day and we're just seeing you know a huge amount of conflict between different recreational user groups and loss of habitat and so that's something that's uh, a real issue here. I mean, there's days when I'll go out and I'll see 30, 40 people, you know, and that's where no it's not this. Yeah. And it's not necessarily going as far deep, but it's finding those off kilter spots that everybody might be driving by. It might be right off the main uh, highway, four lane highway, but those big bulls know that nobody goes there or mm -hmm. where are these bulls going to pressure at a specific time of the year. And so those are the things that I've been really good. And it's taken me a lifetime to figure out here in Colorado is just paying attention to weather, paying attention to human pressure and trying to find those little hellhole nugget spots that those big bulls go to survive in. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you, you talk about that, um, the hellhole kind of spots where the bulls go to survive. Cause there's like, um, I spend quite a bit of time cruising around the areas that we elk hunt and it's the same kind of thing in a lot of the areas is like you'll find a spot that is just torn to shreds like it's there's more trees that have rubs on them than there aren't trees that have rubs on them in like a 200 meter area and it's like year after year you can go back there and you'll almost guarantee that you'll have an elk encounter in that area if you if you wait long enough, you know, if, if you hunt that spot kind of thing. So it's absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of cool to hear that uh, similarity, but so um, the one thing that you did mention there is that, so you, you, you guys are losing habitat and public grounds to other industries in Colorado. You want, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. Right now, um, we're seeing on our national forest lands a big push for mountain bike trail development. And what we've seen in certain communities, the Vail Ski Resort, which I don't know if you guys know, it's a big, big ski resort community here. The Eagle River Valley, Vail Valley has put in a bunch of mountain bike trails in some key elk calving and wintering ground and mule deer calving and wintering ground. And they put these trails in and within a few years, their elk and deer populations just plummeted. And right? so, yeah, so there's some interesting studies uh, being conducted here in the U.S. regarding um, the effects of human disturbance on calf mortality and calf survivability rates. And there's some really good data demonstrating that uh, if a human spooks a cow elk 
off a trail, a human on foot spooks the cow. With the calf, the cow will run X number of yards and then return to the calf. And she can tolerate that a certain number of times. And then a car, she'll spook X number. But the one thing that, it, that pushes the elk the furthest away from their calves are mountain bikes. Really? Interesting. So, yeah. And what, you know, why in my mind is thinking, so why is that? And think about it, something fast and silent coming through the woods. And all of a sudden mm -hmm. it's right up on them. And so there's uh, a lot of data that's showing that these mountain bikes are scaring these cow these cows so far away from their calves so many times that they're abandoning their calves. Hmm. So pretty interesting to see. And then just general, I mean, when you've got hundreds of people on a trail all day, every day, do you, you know, common sense dictates there's not going to be a whole lot of wildlife around except maybe a few bears hitting the trash bins at the trailhead. Yeah. You know, and Absolutely. we just don't have, we don't have much habitat left relative to the states of Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana. You know, we've got three times the population of any of those states here in Colorado and a third of the habitat that they have. So we're losing migration corridors. We're losing migration memory and migrating herds and literally just loving our, our public lands to death here. Hmm. So. Yeah. That's kind of a scary thing too, because there's, there's obviously a bit of a balancing act that, that has to happen with, um, with like tourism and, and, um, just public access and all that stuff. But it's, it's scary to think about that eventually, like, well, you guys are obviously seeing the effects of it now and, and, you know, how, how far is that going to go before something happens or somebody realizes, oh, we fucked up. And now, right. now you're scrambling to save the last meal deer and the last elk on the side of the mountain. Oh, absolutely. And we're dealing with just that here in my hometown of Steamboat. We have I founded a 501c3 called Keep Route Wild. I live in Route County. And we have an elk herd uh, right behind town. Half of the herd that's remaining is in town right now, just because we have 300 plus inches of snow up everywhere <laughs> right now. And our cow to calf ratios are so poor. Uh, biologists are worried that they're, that these herds are at a point of no return. They can hmm. no longer, they're not oh, producing yeah. enough calves to continue the herd moving forward. And so what has happened is we've got, we live in an interesting area. We've got transient migratory elk, and then we've got elk who are residents year round. So our resident elk herd is just something's wrong. And it's a combination of factors. I mean, mountain bikes aren't just the only thing we've got. We're in year 10 of a significant drought. Um, we've got wildlife, you know, mountain lion and black bear populations that are out of control. I mean, biologists will tell you, they don't even know how many mountain lions or black bears they have, but if they were to use all the data they have, they can extrapolate, you know, we have X thousand, but those, those metrics are so old, they will, they no longer uh, apply to the amount of encounters that are, people are having with these predators and black mm -hmm. bears here are literally out of control. And they're the number one predator of elk calves around here as well. So you've got yeah. a combination of factors playing into the picture and none of them are favorable towards the elk. So we're actually, you know, there, I won't hunt this unit anymore just because my, one of my home units, I won't hunt it anymore because the elk herd's in trouble. Yeah. And, uh, we were trying to keep some proposed mountain bike trails out of our last core calving areas, um, on that mountain. Yeah. That's, that's wild to think about. And like, when you think, well, when you think about wildlife activity, they're just like, 
they're just like us, man. If there's a good trail to hang out on, they're probably going to be on that trail. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and our moose, you know, we've got a pretty robust moose population here. And that's the thing. They're, they're on the trails all the time, you know, and oh. they get socialized. They, they're, they can get pretty socialized. And once you throw a yapping dog at them, then they'll turn on you real quick. But uh, yeah, they're just, they you know, just a different animal, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, um, oh man. Lost While you think about that thought, I do, <laughs> I do have, I was one thing I was thinking about, um, about like kind of the mountain bikes and stuff like that. And then, you know, we always, uh, as outdoors people and stuff, we always say, you know, the hunters or the anglers are the, actually the ones that care about what's going on. And, you know, it's kind of, I'm not, I don't want to knock on the mountain bikers in this situation but i'm going to um because like if they did care then obviously some things would change um and it's too bad that that happens because you know we see it all over the place and even up here in canada and uh, maybe not so much in manitoba but like i know in bc and stuff they've they've passed some different laws about different things like um, banned bear hunts and you know just because somebody doesn't like it right they don't think about the entire picture and it's just like proof in the pudding it's just like everywhere we go in the outdoors world it's always we're always against more than one person and at the end of the day it's we should be thinking about the animal or the the property or not the property but the but the land right so that's fairly interesting oh, that's crazy i agree with you 100 percent, Sheldon. that's um you know it's you you come to a point as any recreational user whether you be a mountain biker hunter hiker horseback rider whatever where you realize that you've taken from the resource for so long that you need to start giving back and not just taking, taking. And, you know, uh, a huge contingent of our mountain biking communities actually sit, stepped back and said, wow, you know what? We had no idea that this was going on. And thanks to you elk hunters who are up there and noticing that it's basin after basin with no elk in it and no elk sign that used to be loaded with elk saying, hey, something's going wrong here. And showing us some some data to support that, that, uh, you know, some some of the big portion of the mountain bike community has actually said, wow, we really don't need these new trails. And then we're, you know, not to generalize, but we've got a lot of people who move here from urban areas to recreate. They want to live here for the lifestyle. And some of those folks who, you know, just see the outdoors as a recreational Disneyland, for lack of a better term, um, they just haven't, I just don't think they've, they've come to that point of realization that they need to be uh, contributing to the resource. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. That's a good point you made there too, is like education is probably one of the most important aspects of, of being uh, in the outdoors community and not only like educating other people in the outdoors community, but just like everyone that you talk to pretty much. And like, whether you have a vested interest in it or not, obviously people you do have that vested interest so people who do use resources or affect resources are very important but even people outside of that you know they they need to understand what's going on and and you know what happens if shit does go south you know right not good for anyone yeah. no everybody loses you know yeah. everybody loses that which they love the most tragedy the common scenario and um right now it's what colorado is battling and then we just had a ballot measure passed um, that was passed by 1% um, by our population centers on the front range, Denver, Boulder, and a couple of ski resort communities where they carry a lot of voting power, um, voted to pass a ballot measure wherein the state of Colorado is now going to reintroduce uh, wolves here in Colorado. 
which mm. ironically we already have wolves and <laughs> biologists don't don't know how many wolves we have um cannot you know so we're going to be spending millions of dollars to reintroduce uh wolves the apex predator on top of elk populations that are faltering around the state of colorado mm -hmm. so It'll be really interesting to see. And we also have, I mean, here in my county and the county next to us, we have the largest elk herd in the world, White River uh, elk herd. So, um, you know, I think it's a herd of 40,000 animals here in a pretty couple of decently sized counties, but it's a highly it migratory elk herd. And where do all these, where do all these elk migrate down towards? Out, out into this lower desert country um, that is home. Colorado is the third largest mutton producing state in the nation behind California and Texas of all places. And these elk and deer migrate out of the high country down into <laughs> sheep and cattle ranch country. And they stay there all winter. It's, you know, low elevation, open kind of sage and, uh, country. So the level of human conflict, uh, and we, I don't know if you followed any of the news here, but it's already starting. We've already had a wolf pack that's already gotten in a lot of trouble. And I think there's a lot to be said for some of these wolves that are educated in Wyoming coming in here and that have know not to kill livestock and know to lay low and do what they're supposed to be doing versus transplant wolves that are just going to go for whatever their next easiest meal is, mm -hmm. you know, without being socialized. And now there's a push to prevent them from ever being hunted. And I mean, it's just, uh, we've got political biology um dictating the course of action when we should be letting our biologists and science um, yeah. take control that's the scary and thing then, man yeah there is and you guys have seat chronic wasting disease um in your neck of the woods don't you as well yeah we just picked it up last year well just it was just detected in manitoba last year saskatchewan's right. had it uh pretty much well lots lots of other provinces across uh canada here have it alberta has it saskatchewan has it yeah, everyone around us pretty much has it except for us. So it was like bound to, bound to surface here sooner or later. When did you guys start? When did your province, when did Manitoba start testing for it? Um, well, there was just like a small area along the border that was the mandatory testing zone and they had been testing for oh man i don't know how many years now i i you know what i'd be lying if i say say said i knew but i i feel like it's got to be somewhere around that five to 10 year mark now and yeah. did they just are they just now testing positive deer or did they as soon as they start testing oh we got a positive deer here positive deer there no so yeah they just we just tested a uh i think they actually found uh, a mule deer that was um sick and that was the one that tested positive and i don't think we've actually found any white-tailed deer yet that have tested positive for cwd but no. um now so manitoba never had a mule deer season but mule deer have slowly been encroaching back into manitoba because they were here before but i don't know why they disappeared maybe over hunting or over pressure or whatever but so they're coming back in obviously they're cool. primary carriers for um uh, cwd and then uh once CWD was detected, now we have a, a mule deer season open now, and it's pretty much a wide open mule deer season. <laughs> you can yeah. buy, uh, buy, buy a tag yeah. for five bucks. Uh, that's kind of what we're dealing with here. The, I live in ground zero for chronic wasting disease. So Is that right? First, yeah. detect, first, first detected here in Colorado um, at, a, I believe, at a facility at Colorado State University. And then here, uh, a ranch just outside of my hometown here was the first place they 
came in they that it was tested and they found that it was in the wild animals here as well and so sadly we had this phenomenal mule deer herd on the north end of the flat tops wilderness range just west where i live and uh the mule deer herd has been extirpated to the point of you know biologists will tell you off the record that the that deer herd will never come back or wow. 10,000 plus wow. animals gone and aerial shooting and issuing just a sickening amount of tags and our prevalence rates are you know five percent or lower and they always just keep, still keep shooting the box trying to keep them from transmitting and so we you know mm -hmm. we had world-class mule deer hunting here forever and even with CWD. And then once we started issuing all these tags, now you've got folks saying, well, we clearly have some animals that are old deer that have never tested positive for CWD. Are we killing off the genetics? Are we potentially shooting off some genetically resistant animals? And so it, it's a, that's a big, another big thing impacting our elk our herds here. I mean, we've got CWD positive elk. Um, Colorado's just a hot mess right now, boys. Yeah, no kidding. It doesn't sound like uh doesn't sound like fun, but it's uh yeah. this the whole CWD thing is a whole nother can of worms, man. It is oh I I thought we weren't gonna talk about politics on this show. <laughs> right? There you go, yeah. Yeah, totally. No, I, I agree. You know, and there's science, there's a lot of different science out there, and I just don't know enough to know who's right and who's wrong. Yeah. I don't think anybody does. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think they know enough to. And that's to the, make... and that's the hardest part to have like a an opinion as an outdoorsman or a hunter is that like, there's almost two sides of the story. It's like, well, we should get like, get rid of whatever's carrying it or let's live with it. And it's just like, and just like you said, you don't know who's, I don't know. It's so confusing. Even like I've done a little bit of research myself. I've been on podcasts about it listen to podcasts about it and it's just like i understand what everyone's saying but i don't know what my opinion is still because like <laughs> yeah. i'm so confused sometimes yeah. yeah it's confusing so one thing i am glad you said though is uh when we we're talking about predators and uh, the the black bears predation on on calves because um up here in canada especially like bc that is kind of a hot spot for uh the predator uh there's a big issue over there right now and i, right. I don't even know because right. the, the, the the caribou herd that is there's like i don't even know i haven't seen anything in the news about them for a while or checked into it but there was definitely some issues and they were doing some some wolf calls over there and uh but nothing was to be done you know about black bears and um we we have caribou here we have moose here and we we have some issues with the the moose populations here in manitoba as well and it's like you know, well, black bears are these huge predators for calves, moose calves, caribou calves, elk calves, everything. And that's not even part of the conversation. And like just now it's starting to like some people are starting to to talk about it, which is insane. And there's we've spoken with with people and um, we had the, the biologist on two, three years ago, and he was talking about it and he was, you know, doing research about it. And he actually built a caribou calf, like decoy and did wow. like some, some research and like, like, and had black bears coming to attack this thing and, and everything. And it was, he had a like electro, he had, uh, he had like batteries in it to shock the bears when they, they did it to try <laughs> to like get them to avoid coming after calves. But <laughs> oh. 
pretty wild story. That's, that's amazing. Seriously. Yeah. That, that is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just stuff like that that amazes me how like how how things can just be so focused on on one on part a micro of the issue. Yeah, one yeah. part of the issue. One idea. Well, yeah. You've got to look at the full landscape. And yeah. I mean, you, everybody wonders why are the mule deer herd has fallen numbers and trophy quality has fallen off precipitously in the western US uh, since the 1980s and you know, I think common sense first one thing that happened was federal legislation was passed that outlawed outlawed I think the late 70s early 80s the use of strychnine and 1080 poisoning which obviously was a great thing because those poisons were hellacious they killed through the ecosystem um horrible uh, those poisons were outlawed uh for use by by um cattle and um mutton producers so and we've got a huge drought cycle that's effectively set in since the 1980s and really hasn't the back of that is yet to be broken here and then you've got um, another manifest destiny moment here in the west where everybody from the coast is moving into the mountains the beautiful rockies here in the western u.s and so you're losing habitat and you look at what happened after the 1080 and strict nine were outlawed mountain lion coyote populations and black bear populations went skyrocketed Mm-hmm. We outlawed our spring bear hunt here in Colorado. Bear populations skyrocketed even further. Uh, you throw in drought cycle and loss of habitat, and our elk populations blew up at the same time. And it's just a, you look at all those factors, and it's like, well, no shit, the mule deer population took a nosedive. Mm-hmm. And then CWD, all of a sudden we started testing for CWD, and shit, there's CWD all over our deer herds here in northwestern Colorado. So it's the, they can't win, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's tough getting, getting hit from all angles. Yeah. Um, you know, there's one thing that I was going to ask you too there, Cody is like, clearly a lot of these issues are, are close to close to home for you. And that's figuratively and legit too. Um, but what, uh, do you do any like type of writing or like, how do you kind of spread the word about what's going on in your, in your community and, and stuff like that? Really good question. I probably, I'm, certainly not vocal enough my writing hunting writing days um uh are effectively over i used to write um had a number of articles published photography published back in the day that's something i used to be really passionate about and now you know through the creation of this 501c3 organization with some like-minded individuals and old uh friends of mine here in town some of whom aren't even don't even like to elk hunt probably wouldn't even eat elk but are just aware aware of the salient issues here um just Mm -hmm. local advocacy uh, i think it's been a big thing and then uh, the podcast that uh, a friend of mine and i recently started um really bringing outdoorsmen kind of what you guys are doing just really trying to educate people as to what's going on um in the real world of hunting, uh, you know, outside of Instagram and YouTube and all the back, uh, back slapping and high fives and really trying to educate people that need to give, like you keep saying, give back to the resource and mm-hmm. not to say, I mean, some of my really close YouTube buddies are ac- excellent when it comes back to giving to their local communities, their wildlife populations and habitat. And so I think that's somewhere where the hunting community right now, vis-a-vis social media and YouTube is really failing um, is on the conservation end of things. Everybody preaches, oh, this event, we're going to this, support this cause. But at the end of the day, who's doing the grassroots um, canvassing, trying to get people educated on 
issues that they're going to be voting on or educating a mountain community about hey this is these we're losing these animals these keystone species up on the mountain here and if those go what else is going to go we don't even know how bad how bad it is yet so I think just using the available platforms, I think now people are more likely to watch a YouTube video than they are to go pick up an old hunting magazine, um, mm-hmm. sadly, because I think the written word is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And and so is really good photography, but shit, every, every kid with an iPhone 14 has got a pro deal and ambassadorship nowadays. <laughs> um, they may not, not know shit about hunting, but uh, they're really good at producing social media content and from a marketing standpoint that's worth a lot of money i mean mm-hmm. you know you get a few good ambassadors on your program who are really good with the camera and video content and that's saving a um that, that's you know you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars if not millions of dollars based on which who the company is in terms of free advertising so yeah. but um they're not doing enough not doing enough yeah yeah well i i work for a, a conservation organization here in manitoba and um it is to to rally and like get people together is not an easy task a lot of the times and it's i agree a I lot agree. of it's yeah. a lot of boots on the ground and you know interacting face-to-face interactions is is what yeah. really um gets people driven and gets people organized to to be a part of something it is that's the other thing too is that that's what drives me nuts about lots of this stuff is that like and i'm on social media i hate to say it too because like i'm on social media every day and there's like people out there like chase that are working with these with these you know um mantle wildlife federation for instance that are trying to like get initiatives out there and trying to get people involved and all you and all we do (laughs) like I'm not saying all we do, but I'm saying all we're asking for is a share and a comment or whatever. Send it to your buddy that might be interested. And people can't even do that. Like, we're not no. even asking you to come to a meeting anymore. We're not asking you to donate. We're, we're just asking you to share. And the thing that just drives me fucking nuts about everything is like, even with our own platform, you know, hey, share this podcast, give it to a buddy you might like. It's so hard for people to do. But if you're if you had a nice set of tits and holding a fish, you'd get like 3000 likes and share and it just like, I know it's a very touchy subject, but I'm just throwing it out there. It just it drives me nuts, dude. I I so hear you. I often say if I wasn't short, bald, and ugly, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I'd have a massive social media following and be a famous <laughs> hunter. But <laughs> the reality is, I'm married to a beautiful woman. I'm definitely, certainly married up, and uh, I don't even care if I, my face is in half of my stuff, you know, I'll look away from the camera or down that sort of thing, but it, it's just sickening. And then you've got social media influencers. Um, you know, we've got some very notable folks who are in serious trouble for trespassing, poaching, um, issues here in the U S guys with hundreds of followers on YouTube and Instagram. And it's just, this drive for content is driving so many other people to, you know, instead of go enjoy a hunt and maybe not shoot a three and a half year old mule deer or a young bull, they're going to go get something on film so that they've got the content that they want. And so we're going to go build up the shed antler hunting season. And right now, you know, the state of Wyoming is losing their minds because of all the pressure on their mule deer wintering range. Colorado, now we have shed hunt, shed antler hunting seasons because of just oh, this wow. 
social media frenzy that has caused, you know, this insatiable demand for antler. And it's not just shed antler. I mean, it's it's across the board. And I always I always struggle with that. I'm like, shit, I put up some pictures of of some of the animals I kill on social media, you know, and my wife asked me, she's like, isn't that pretty egotistic, egotistical of you to be doing that? And, you know, are isn't that against everything you respect? You say you respect those animals so much, but you'll put a picture of it in public. Like, wow. Yeah. Why, you know, why is that? And I think at the end of the day, I'm just really enthusiastic about things. And I know, you know, some, you know, like Eric Chester from Hushin, he is such a good dude and so enthusiastic about life, such a positive role model. And, you know, he, his heart is in the right place, but the message just lathers a lot of people into a frenzy of stupidity where they will go into these areas that are closed during the winter range and just to go pick up a big shed of, set of elk antlers, bump a herd of elk, and it may kill, you know, end up resulting in an animal dying. Yeah. So, you know. I've also, I, like, I've often tried to have this own message, like, and, and there's something that my dad kind of taught me too, is like, same with us, like shed hunting for whitetail in our area, um, especially in northern Manitoba, or not northern Manitoba, but in Manitoba, we're in the northern area where whitetail are, are, wild and there's some people that go out in you know um february march to go shed hunting and it's just like ah like you can do whatever you want but at the same time you also got to understand you, you might be bumping a whole bunch of deer out of that bush that have no energy already because they're right. walking through three feet of snow so just think about that right and i try to get that message across but it's it's just you know you just you got to learn it from somebody or you gotta you know what i mean like you gotta figure it out absolutely you know you've got to preach that ethic if you're in a position where people are, where you're influencing the lives of thousands of people, you have a duty and obligation rather to educate people as to that ethic, you know, and, and that's where, that's where some people just fall short. Yeah. I, I, before we take off to, I, I mean, the conversation is so good. I don't even want to stop, but I don't want to take up too much of your time either, but you did mention that you're starting a podcast uh, with another buddy of yours and you're, what is do you want to give me a little bit of background on the part like what's the theme of your podcast like what are you kind of going for good call it is the podcast called mentis Brevis mental strength and my my buddy cole olam and i just honestly it's kind of a difficult subject a couple of years ago you know i, was, I had the most successful year of my life in every regard and just crashed at the end of the year super depressed and um just physically emotionally you know Every aspect of my life was shot, um, but I'm living a blessed life. And I reached out to someone and said, hey, man, I need to talk. And Sky Cole, who I didn't know very much at the time, aside from the fact that he dragged me through the coals uh, uh, fire for posting some the name of a river on a work-related Instagram post that I, relate, that I did. Anyway, long story short, we are kind of calling out the hunting industry and filling a gap, attempting to fill a gap rather in the hunting industry and fishing industries, um, you know, trying to draw attention to just what we've talked about here today, giving back to the resource, not being a taker, um, addressing the realities of what hunters and anglers and professionals and people who aren't professionals just uh, are going through in their average everyday lives. You know, a lot of guys, they may post up uh, all these glorified pictures on Instagram, but at the end of the day, they may have saved up all year to barely afford to go on that trip. 
and they may be stressed out not only about money but about family they may be struggling with depression addiction you don't know what and so social media everything is just portraying this everything's positive haters are going to hate the world is great and is that really an accurate portrayal that, uh, of life that people need to be seeing who are struggling might say god why isn't my life like that why well, this is that is that normal and so you know i lost a friend to suicide this past week in fact and uh, Jeez. what yeah and uh th those things are tough to deal with you know and so I think that having lost a few friends over the last few years um, to depression, I really think it's um, something that really needs to be addressed in the in life, but especially so in the hunting and fishing industry. I mean, you were talking about um, uh, string bikinis and big bass photos and how that gets a lot of likes and attention. And that's exactly what's going on with the industry is you've got people who are really good with photography and videography getting a lot of attention and portraying this unrealistic lifestyle you know and what is it actually like when you're out in the woods what's going through your mind and how at the end of the day are you getting through these things if you need somebody to talk to um, call them and basically just trying to get people a to identify what their issue if they are if they do have an issue to identify it and b to think about how they can address it w with themselves and or with others so it's trying to trying to fill that notch. I mean, that's kind of a rambling, not not kind of that is a rambling response to your question there. But um, you know, we're interviewing some people who've been through some pretty incredible things in their lives, and then we're also interviewing people who are just going to talk about fishing and hunting <laughs> and their yeah. professional lives and what what is it that actually makes them that good? What failures cause them to get there? So. Yeah, I, I tip my hat to you, man, because uh, I've had this conversation with a bunch of, we're not this conversation, but had a similar conversation with a bunch of people throughout the years of like, you know, it's always like the grip and grins of these big, you know, 180 bucks and it's all this stuff. And, you know, but what's wrong with getting the spiker and what's wrong with filling the freezer? You just don't get the love, like let's say the love that you do um, with something else. But uh, that being said, plus the fact that, you know, mental health, um, is huge for me personally. It runs, I got a lot of different things that happened in my family. And, um, so it's always interesting to like, listen to different perspectives and have people to talk to. And I mean, um, every time or anytime we can get somebody onto the podcast and just be able to, you know, open up and say what you want to say. Um, we seem to always push forward for that. So good, good on good. you guys. I hope, uh, I hope that podcast is, uh, starting. I, you said you got a few episodes done or have you aired any yet? Yeah, we've got two episodes aired, um, a couple thousand um, download subscribers. So it's off to a good. Oh, nice. the, the production quality is a little rough, I'm not going to lie, but we're getting <laughs> better. <laughs> and, um, and, but the, the people who are listening and some of the comments that I get from some individuals, some notable individuals, or uh, and even people who aren't notable, uh, just the positive positive feedback and the gratitude that we're getting as a result of it is ultimately at the end of the day, while well, we're going to, why, why we're going to continue doing it. So save, you know, change, uh, the way someone thinks, maybe save a couple of people from making bad decisions. Um, and that at the end of the day is worth it all right there. hundred percent, man. hundred percent. Um, anyone listening right now too, if you're looking for it, we'll link it in the show notes to the episode here. So 
check it there. Easy find for you too. Um, man, we kind of, we kind of, uh, went on quite the, quite the ride there with you, but I I do want to end on an elk hunting story from yourself Ooh. if you got one teed up <laughs> or one you want to hey, talk about him right on the spot <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i gotta think about this or it doesn't uh, have to be a, a it doesn't have to be a elk hunting story encounter whatever uh just something special that uh you know that you've experienced in your in your life oh i'll always go uh i'll always go down the rabbit hole of an elk hunting story and uh, i'll try and give you the abridged version here um I wrote a piece for Meat Eater about this uh, exact hunt years ago, and I uh, called it The Hazards of Hunting with Harold. And Harold is my father. And quick side note, uh, everybody always is like, man, you've been elk hunting your whole life. Your dad must have been this great elk hunter and taught you everything you know. I'm like, well, I've definitely been elk hunting my whole life with my dad, but my dad was such a bad elk hunter. I realized really at a young age, I had to figure this shit out on my own. <laughs> and so I did. And um anyway it's probably seven eight years ago my dad and i were hunting in the gila and we we're kind of hunting private uh private and public ground on uh, this huge ranch that some of our family friends owned and it was december second day of the hunt uh i killed a giant bull a giant bull and it took us two days to pack the elk out it was a five-day hunt and um the we hunted and a huge storm blew in as, as right after i dropped that bull amazing amazing so we packed elk for two days and couldn't find the elk on the fourth day and the fifth day i glassed a bull a really good six point bull drop into a side canyon in this big long canyon down this down the gila southwestern new mexico so we did a two mile loop around and came in the ridge opposite of the ridge that we'd seen this bull drop over under the north slope of it would pop up over and there's shit there's six six point bulls just standing up feeding bedding down standing up feeding and um when we were packing out my bull my dad had fallen with his gun on his shoulder fallen hard on his gun knocked the scope and i said hey and i think you uh, you, you fell really hard on that gun why don't you just carry my gun i'm done anyway no 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 and uh long story short these bulls are probably only 250 yards away and bull stands up, Harold shoots, bull goes down, stands right back up. He shoots again, <clears throat> stumbles and goes over the ridge, over the backside of the ridge. And there's snow on the ground, mind you. So I'm like, all right, hit this bull. Perfect. Let's go. Let's go get him. We get up there and it's just a few drops of blood every 50 yards or so in the snow and tracks follows the backside of this ridge line up to the edge of a huge canyon and drops in this huge canyon we go down there we find we get right up on the bull he's batted at like 50 yards like, all right give him a coup de gras my dad shoots and misses shoots and misses <laughs> and i'm like oh my god i could tell him like that gun's out of that your scope's off and um he's like uh give me some more bullets i don't have any bullets he's like well i don't have any bullets either so turns out he'd forgotten to bring extra bullets with him and <laughs> mind you now we're like three and a half miles away from the truck in a canyon that i had shed hunted for many years and found just a ton of lion kills in over the years and so i ran through the canyon back to the truck literally running as my dad's standing there i left my backpack on the blood trail right across the bowl i ran 
through this series of canyons. And then the whole time I'm running back to my truck to get my gun and bullets I'm thinking, man, I just had that sixth sense that something was watching me. God, I just know there's mountain lions in here. And I picked up one of those Mylar balloons and I'm making noise, shaking it and trying to make noise as I got further away and go get the gun, get the bullets, run back to my dad. And as I get up to where my dad was below the bull, he's telling me to slow down, slow down, holding his hands out, you know, to be quiet and slow down. And I assume it's just because the bull's there. And I go up to him and he goes, you're not going to believe what just happened. Three mountain lions just came down to that blood trail, followed it back to your backpack, sniffed your backpack, turned around, ran over to that bull and jumped him and took off chasing him up the other side of the canyon. No way. <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> the most amazing, sadly, blood trail that I've ever followed. Um, it was a mama with two sub-adults and she, you could see where the bull would try and stay in the open stuff going up this slope. And she would push him, her tracks would come and she'd push him over into rocks or thick trees. And he'd try and bed down and the two younger cats would jump on him and they'd tussle. It was amazing blood trail. And anyway, they did that all the way up the other side of the canyon across this plateau. And it's the last day of the season, last evening, the sun's setting. And all of a sudden, you know, we're hiking as hard as we can. I look down, the blood's getting fresher and fresher and fresher in the snow. And I look at my dad in the setting sun, I'm like, we got to run now. So we ran to the edge of this plateau, Mesa as we call it, and we get right into the edge of the trees and uh, no shit. I look up and three mountain lions just go blasting off on both sides of me and the bull stands up right in front of me. Um, They had that, they had finally taken him down for good right there in front of us. They had him down and he popped up and my dad shot him right there. And it turns out uh, the kicker of the story was we were only a quarter mile from our camp when uh, those mountain lions were heading right back to our camp. (laughs) 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 It was a short pack out. So, and they were on that carcass the next morning. Uh, They'd eaten all the back, eating all the back ribs out. Yeah. Yep. We had to shoo them off. And fortunately I went on gun duty when my dad finished uh, cutting it up. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so when I hunt with my dad, crazy shit always happens. So um, that's that's the uh, end of the story. But he's why that's big a, part part of the reason why I do it. So that's an yeah. amazing story. That's cool. That's very yeah. cool. Yeah, I've never heard something like that before. Me neither. <laughs> if I wouldn't have seen it, I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Awesome. Well, right on, Cody. I'm just uh, i think we'll probably wrap things up here we've got uh like i said we don't want to take up all all of your time uh, we kind of just do a quick round table to kind of say our last thoughts and stuff and i'll start it out and maybe throw it off to chase and then you can say something at the end if you like and or if you don't you can just say goodbye but you know i just wanted to you know mention having you on here was kind of a recommendation from like from doug dern and I'm so happy he did because uh um it's it's i just think it's a really good thing that we can talk to fellow outdoorsmen and, and shoot the shit and, you know, get different ideas and think about uh, some of the things that are going wrong in this world and, and try to solve them. And if not solve them, like I said, give each other other ideas. So just keep doing what you're doing. Um, we'll be more than happy to throw those, like Chase said, throw your podcast on the notes and um, all the best to you, man. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I, go ahead, Chase. Yeah. I was just going to say, thanks for, thanks for joining us, man. And uh Definitely learned a little bit about Colorado today and, uh, you know, some of the, the, uh, the conservation issues that you guys are dealing with there. Um, glad to, well, not glad, but it's, it's interesting to hear that there's, there's, you know, these large issues all over the place that, that 
folks are dealing with. Um, but I think uh, my my biggest takeaway here is the uh, your podcast that you guys are starting, man. That's that is that's good work. That's that's like what people need in their lives. Lots of people need that in their lives, and it's important. I think it's going to be you know great for a lot of a lot of people to be tuning into that. So um, definitely well done on that, and uh, keep giving around that, my friend. Well. Thank you, my amigos up north. I really appreciate what you guys are doing in terms of trying to educate folks and bring in a diverse set of speakers that talk about issues that are may not be known in your neck of the woods or other necks of the woods, but bring bring light to those issues and to, um, hopefully make the world that we know, hunting and fishing, and um, personally a, a better place for, for everyone. I think education obviously is power. You guys are doing the right thing here and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be a guest with you. So that's awesome. Thanks, Cody. Um, yeah, it means a lot. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll stay in touch, keep in touch, and we'll get you back on the podcast. Maybe talk. So, how about the 30 other things we talked about on the phone that we didn't get to touch on tonight? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we painted with a broad, uh, broad brush tonight. So, I'm always happy to dig more uh, deeply with a finer brush on other aspects of life right. or hunting. So, Thank you guys again. It's been a pleasure. Hey, right on, man. You take care. Adios. Well, that was episode of 143 with Cody. I was, uh, I'm still pretty like blown away about some of the ideas and stuff that that guy had. I, I it was really refreshing to have a lot of sim- similar uh, interests and ideas, and having guys like that or people like that in general. I mean, it's reason why we want to do the podcast. Not all ideas are all agreed upon, but their ideas and um sometimes to have an idea you gotta risk being offensive or risk you know sounding like an asshole but it's okay because it's just just an idea or it's just like i don't know tristan back me up on that (laughs) no i'm sure i sound like an asshole on the reg so and if people are still stopping by the the outdoor show to say hello to us and i guess not too many feathers have been ruffled, but maybe, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta hear some critical disruptive information once in a while to grow as a person. Oh, know? absolutely. It's, uh, when I do education, it's like, they call it the orange or like the, the yellow zone. Green is like your comfort zone. You, you don't really learn things there, but you're comfortable. Yellow, you're, you're pushing the boundaries a little, but you're still in the learning zone. And if it's red, then you're in trouble and no one learns anything when they're in red. So keep it in the yellow. <laughs> keep it in the yellow, folks. The other thing I do want to mention too, Tristan, before we take off tonight, um, we talked a little bit on the podcast about mental health and how Cody started a, a podcast about you know mental health in, in the outdoors and how we should start showcasing some of the things that aren't so glamorous with the outdoors. Um, and I really want, uh, want to mention like, we're a panoramic here. We're uh, big mental health advocates. Um, Tristan, you can talk more on that in a second here too, but anybody that, that needs, uh, needs a helping hand or anything, don't be afraid to reach out. Um, you can, you know, message anybody. There's people out there that love you. So always reach out, be careful out there. If you need to get outdoors to, you know, refresh the brain, get outside. That's what you got to do. Yeah. I'm I'm laughing because like part of me is thinking like, well, if if we gotta showcase the not so glamorous side of the outdoors, Cody sure as hell came on the right podcast because <laughs> we've that's we've, been, <laughs> we've been missing moose and elk and deer since uh 
since we started this thing. So you came on the right podcast, Cody. And then, but also recognizing too, like the things that I really appreciate about being outdoors is not just that opportunity to recharge and reconnect with myself, but also the the community that that I do truly believe that the outdoor world does have. And um, you're, you're spot on there. Uh, if our priority isn't to support each other when things are tough, um, you know, how the hell are we supposed to support each other when things are good? So I think uh, the the more we can just kind of share and, and kind of open up space to to help get through tough times as well as the good ones, I think that's just going to make our community that much more stronger. So I'm glad we're having Absolutely. those conversations. I'm glad we're showcasing them. And uh, if there's any more out there that need to be had, I hopefully will pony up for that kind of shit, right? Yeah. Hundred percent. Well said. And like the last thing I will say on this topic is that they have uh Bell Let's Talk Day, but we don't need a media company to to allow you to talk. You're you're always allowed to reach out and uh and be there for other people too. Don't forget that. Um a couple other things before we take off today. The store is uh up and running. It's got limited stock and we uh, after this this um outdoor show we have to catch the store up i gotta go in there and redo all the numbers so if you're going in there to to buy something um have a little bit of patience with us um some stuff might not be in stock and some stuff might be so uh we're in the middle of of restocking everything getting everything ready for that yorkton show so there's gonna be a lot of things coming into the store so keep checking that out if you're also bored we do have a few blog posts in there and a few recipes on our website so that's www.panoramicoutdoors.com um if there's if there's any way if you're wondering a way to help us out and it may not be by like buying something from us share this podcast episode go to apple or spotify wherever you listen to your podcast give us a like um give us a rating and leave a comment those things go make us uh, grow it goes a long way and it gets cool guests like we had today look at that i rhymed i'm a poet <laughs> not just a pretty face eh well, not today. <clears throat> well, if we're not going to see you at a trade show and if we don't see you in the woods or on the ice, uh, we'll wish you uh, all the best out there. Keep those lines tight. Keep those shacks toasty and checking in with each other once in a while. 